0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Experts are starting to talk about a curious shift from what was the fear that things would never return to normal, remember that fear, to a fear now that they actually will. There's an emerging fear of going back to the way things were, the busyness the overextendedness, the rat race. Truth be told, many people in our day, perhaps some of us even here today, entered into a way of life that was toxic to our souls. And now that we've been spared from that for a little while, and looking back, we see how it was destroying our spirit, sort of sapping the very life out of us. Perhaps your whole life has just been one rushed, unblinking movement from task to task, trying to cram more into the 24 hours in a day, constantly running on fumes. Your heart, you now realize looking back, was growing small and cold. Your spirit was getting shallower as you became more and more self-absorbed. And then along came COVID. And we were forced to stop or at least slow down a bit. And in there somewhere hiding behind our outward irritation was an inward peace an inward joy, a little hope, because margin had come back into our lives. And secretly, we enjoyed it. But now the prospect looms that things are at some point just maybe going to return to a semblance of what we used to call normal, and we're more than a little concerned that the hamster wheel is just waiting for us to get back on and start treading again. Which brings us to Matthew 12, in our walk through Matthew. So let me set the table for you for a few minutes. In Matthew 11, Jesus has spoken about the way the religious leaders had wearied and burdened down the people with the legal obligations of their traditions and told them that he had come instead to give rest to those who would take on his yoke of discipleship. So far, there's been an underlying current as we walk through Matthew, of opposition to Jesus' ministry from the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees. That is now about to change. They've deceived themselves into believing that Jesus is not from God, or certainly from our perspective, not God, and thus it is their self-serving duty to protect the people, and they set out now aggressively to trap Jesus in a violation of God's law. It's interesting to me that over and over again through the gospel accounts, there is one commandment that they seem to turn to more often than not in order to try and trap Jesus. Do you know which one it was? The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. This commandment is tied to what God himself did. The Bible said that during the week of creation, each day God would work. He separated the dry land from the water. He separated the earth from the heavens, the light from the darkness. The sixth day was the climax. God created humans in his own image. And then it says this, on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from his work of creation. Now notice the wording here, it's, it's so important. We would expect the writer to say, on the sixth day, God finished the work, because he'd been working all six days, and that was the end of it, right? But it doesn't say that. It said, the writer says that God finished his work on the seventh day. So here's the question. What was God creating on the seventh day? He created the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. The very last thing, if you want to get particular about it, that God created was the Sabbath, a holy day, not a holy place. Many world religions have created holy places, most of them set off in remote places as sanctuaries, but God does not do this. He creates a holy day. Do you see the wisdom? Do you see the beauty in this? He creates a holy day, a sanctuary in time. Because time is the stuff of our lives, isn't it? We're pretty good at conquering space issues. We're not really all that great at conquering time. God creates the Sabbath, and then this amazing thing. God rested from all his work. God himself rested. Why did God rest? God clearly did not do that because he was exhausted or burned out. God ordained. That there was to be a rhythm to our existence work and rest activity and reflection production and then gratitude god said you need to remember that you are an eternal being you need to remember that your life is more about more than all you can cram into it between now and the grave it's not a frenzied race You're destined for eternity, and surely as you sit here or as you watch from home in this moment right now, you will occupy every moment of eternity. Your being will never cease. You are an eternal being. So God said, one day a week, I want eternity to invade time. I want you to remember. God said, I want you to worship. Frankly, I want you to play. You need to play, you need to be renewed physically emotionally, spiritually. If we didn't do this, friends, we will become exhausted, obsessive, self-preoccupied, irritable, ungrateful, and all the compassion will be squeezed right out of us. We'll skim through life instead of actually living it. Abraham Heschel, a writer about the Sabbath, wrote this. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the seventh day, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. The round of confrontation now begins as the Pharisees up the ante. They make two accusations against Jesus and his disciples for what they perceived as violations of the Sabbath. Matthew 13:1, and we begin. God had given the Sabbath as a day of rest and holiness, Over time, the Sabbath became one of the most distinctive characteristics of God's people. It stands to reason then that it would have a huge target painted on it, wouldn't it? So then things start to go overboard. The Pharisees, in an effort to ensure that no one would even come close to violating the Sabbath, developed an extensive set of laws to keep the people from even getting close to breaking the commandment. There's a lot of irony built in here in that the Pharisees are using the extremely burdensome laws that they made up. It wasn't God, it was them that added all these laws to keep them from breaking the Sabbath commandment, which was to take some rest instead of building all these laws. In his day, in Jesus' day, there were all kinds of rules, and you can look these up on the Internet. I could stand here all day because there's that many rules they added to the Sabbath. For instance, they made a rule that you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. That would be work if you carried a burden, and that would be wrong. You're not supposed to work. People wanted to know then, and you're probably already thinking that, What's a burden? So they had to define what a burden was, and a whole lot of rules and laws came out of that. One of them being, iron is a burden. Now, some of you ladies are going, ironing is a burden. I get that. No, no, no. Iron is a burden. So if your shoes had iron nails in them, every step you took was carrying a burden. You couldn't do that. However, lots of them had heavier pairs of shoes that had no iron in them. That was okay. You could walk in those all day long. It wasn't a burden. There were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of rules. There, there was one rabbi, and I'm not making this up, who actually wrote that he would not eat an egg if it had been laid by a hen on the Sabbath, because then the hen would have had to have been working. Now, it seems to me it would have been a whole lot more work for the hen to hang on to that egg for another day. (laughs) You can just imagine. I don't know. It just seems to me like a lot of work. But you can see how crazy it got. They wanted to protect themselves, or at least perceive that they wanted to protect themselves from breaking the law, so they put a whole bunch of other laws in place. The first confrontation comes as the Pharisees call out Jesus and his disciples for working on the Sabbath. Sometime on this particular Sabbath, Jesus went for a walk with his disciples. As they're making their way along, the disciples became hungry and reached down to pick a few grains of wheat to eat and quell their afternoon rumblies in their tummies, as Winnie the Pooh would say, as they walked the pass beside the grain fields. This was allowable. Under the law, a gracious law given in Deuteronomy by God for the people who were hungry. Not only was this allowed, But most farmers intentionally then therefore left a strip of grain unharvested beside the pass just for this purpose. So it was encouraged of them to do that in the Old Testament and they obeyed. Now I find it very hard to believe that the Pharisees were posted along every path looking for every supposed lawbreaker who picked a head of grain. No, they were obviously following Jesus looking for any opportunity now to trip him up. And when the grain was picked and eaten, they saw their chance. And now it all comes down to how you interpret work. For they were not to work on the Sabbath. The rule makers no doubt originally had farmers in mind when they decided that harvesting a field, reaping, uh, separating the grain from the chaff, winnowing, all of that was work. I suspect from my experience of farming for 17 years that almost all if not all of the farmers, would have signed on and agreed with that wholeheartedly. Yes, harvesting that field and then threshing and separating out the chaff, all by hand, no less, was a whole lot of work. But I also suspect that none of them would have considered picking a few heads on the side of the path and cleaning them in your hand to get a small handful to eat was considered any kind of work at all. So if I was Jesus and this accusation came, I might have brought this up for debate. Seriously, this isn't work compared to harvesting an entire field. And for that matter, you made up this rule. That's not God's rule. That's your rule. But that's not what Jesus does. What he does is cite some examples from the Old Testament that go right to the heart of God's intention for the Sabbath in the first place. It's not simply don't do work. That's all the Pharisees heard. That's all they cared about. Maybe that's all you've cared about for the Sabbath. They liked what they heard. It says, don't do work. So we'll surround that with a whole bunch of don't dos. Don't do this, that's work. Don't do that, that's work. That that way we won't ever come close to working. But it wasn't about that at all. It was don't work, so... Don't work so you can rest. Don't work so you can be revived. Don't work so you can stay healthy and strong, physically, mentally, spiritually. It wasn't about don't do. It was about then being able to do things that were good and right and life-giving and joyful and most of all, honoring to God. Do you see? It was, there was another part to the sentence, don't do your, your onerous work so you can do these good things. Jesus doesn't challenge the Sabbath law itself, but the Pharisees' interpretation of it because how they interpreted it had no benefit to the people. And the intent of the law is to serve God's people, not for God's people to serve the law. Then we are quickly thrust into confrontation number two. Same theme. This time, it's about healing. On this particular Sabbath, Jesus is in a synagogue, and there's a man there with a shriveled-up hand. Again, it's important to see their motive here. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, we're not told who's actually asking this, but the MO, the modus operandi, says it's the Pharisees again, because this is what they're trying to do, right? And they ask him, huh, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, time out for a second here. I find it interesting, maybe even slightly humorous, but obviously quite telling, that at this point they aren't even questioning whether Jesus can actually heal the man. Do you see that? They're just like, well, obviously he can heal the guy, but it can't, will he do it on a Sunday, on a Sabbath, right? They've They've been trailing him, they've seen firsthand the healings, the miracles he's done. That he can heal now is just a given. They're not even badgering about that anymore. They're baiting Jesus to heal the man on the Sabbath not prove who he is by healing him. The Pharisees held to their interpretation that only in extreme cases of life and death could the no work on the Sabbath rule be violated. A withered hand, uh, from their perspective, did not qualify as anything near extreme that would require you to break the Sabbath. He could wait. Jesus points out that they would rescue a trapped sheep Uh, especially if it was one of their own. He slides that in there. Like, yeah, which one of you is going to leave your sheep lying there? No, you're going to go save it. On the Sabbath, no less. But you would show no compassion to a man suffering right here? Was a sheep more valuable than a human being? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Here again, Jesus is making the point that the highest principle in keeping the Sabbath was not simply abstaining from all activity and therefore being somehow more holy, but rather not working so that you could do good and so that you could honor God on the Sabbath. Not only was it right for Jesus to heal the man, which he did with a simple touch, by extension it meant that it was right and good to do good anytime, anywhere. And rather than embracing the freedom offered in this higher principle, the Pharisees chose the other path and began their plot to kill Jesus. This is when that started, when it escalated to that point. So let's take a step back now. For us personally and take a look at our seventh day. And of course, you all know that on Jesus' resurrection on a Sunday, they changed that to be the Sabbath, which was now the first day. But of course, we're working through creation here, so we're going to refer to it as the seventh day. But you'll all know that's Sunday in our our calendar now, and it's our first day. But walk with me through creation. This was the seventh day. I want to talk to you for a few moments about the practice of the Sabbath and about how we were made most if not all of us by the time we've reached our 20s understand the concept of work don't we not only do we understand what work is we're doing it in some vocational activity or other but the other factor in our lives that is equally important is a health in a healthy way of living is what i'm going to call our vacational activity so there's vocational and then there's vacational activity now i know this is bad grammar There is no such word as vacational. But just go with me for a while on this one, okay? If you must write in, do it now. Remember, my last name is Pearson, first name Zach. (laughs) I'm talking about the rest that is as necessarily a part of our lives as work is. But I want to start by clearing up a potential misconception about this that the call to live a rested life is not a call to keep the pace of life slow. Truth be told, I like being motivated. I like being able to live and work here in this place and truthfully now have a place in BC that I can go visit in the winter. (laughs) I love the challenge of many activities and strenuous pursuits and trying to achieve and grappling with complexity. Effort and achievement and labor and devotion to the task are part of the glory of what it is to be a human being. We were created in God's image. The call to live as rested people is not a pining for an era back in, I don't know, Little House of the Prairie days when there was just like, you know, not enough work. We just kind of, you know, went through life and it all seemed rosy. It's about living in the post-COVID world now. Fortunately for us, God gave to the human race some guidance on not only how to cope but how to live well. We call them the 10 commandments. And just like in Jesus day, we're looking today at maybe the most violated of all 10 commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 6 days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the 7th, but the 7th day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work. Jesus had made it abundantly clear that the Sabbath is not about legalistic obligations. In Jesus' day, a lot of people had turned it into a burden. In his day, there were a lot of kind of rules on how to keep it and how to kind of go through it. There was, as I've said already, dozens and dozens of rules. Jesus said, no more of this nonsense. People weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the sake, for the health, for the well-being of people. It's a gift. It's a gift to us that seventh day. Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, indicates quite clearly that no one day is more special, more more holy than any other. All days have been redeemed. It's not about that particular. It's about a day, setting aside a day a week. And I know some of your schedules have you working, perhaps, on Sundays. It's not particularly about a specific day a list of rules do's and don'ts it's about how we need a sabbath rhythm in our lives now we're going to do something a little crazy here and and jump ahead a bit to a verse yet further on some verses further on in this chapter and then we're going to come back a sabbath rhythm is important because of God's universal gigo gigo rule Have all, do you all know the gigo gigo rule no i'm not laughing the gigo gigo rule that is Garbage in, garbage out. Goodness in, goodness out. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in them, and an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. This is one of God's principles. We're storing up things in our inner life all the time. Bad, joyful, sad, happy, true, false, noble, demeaning. And the idea here is that what you let into your inner life occupies it, and over time fills it, and then comes out in what you say, what you do, in your character, and all through your life. See, nobody trains for the Olympics and then goes on a marshmallow and chocolate diet. Well, maybe the, maybe the weightlifters. But most people don't train for the Olympics by going on a marshmallow and chocolate diet. When people have kids, they're very careful about what goes into that child, especially the first child. They're really careful about that, right? The pacifier falls out of the first kid's mouth. And the mom picks it up and puts it in a pot of boiling water, sterilizes it, pulls it out with tongs, and waves it around to air dry it before inserting it back into her child's mouth. The second kid's pacifier falls out, and she runs it under some cold tap water, dries it off with a dish towel, and gives it back. The third kid drops the pacifier. The mother picks it up, spits on it, rubs it off, and sticks it back into the kid's (laughs) kid's mouth. Not a big deal, right? But as a general rule, we're quite careful about what we put put into something that's valuable to us. We know that what we put in determines its performance and well-being. And that's why it's so ironic that in the most important area of all, our inner life, our soul, we disregard this wonderful piece of wisdom with complete indifference. Garbage in, garbage out goodness in, goodness out. It's as inviolable as the law of gravity. The law of gravity does not surprise anybody. Nobody steps, steps off a 10-foot ledge, falls, and says, now, what were the odds of that happening? I never thought that could happen. But people violate the giggle-giggle law all the time. They act as if it comes as a total shock. I didn't know if I took all that junk in, that junk would come out. We violate the giggle gigo rule all the time. The things you do or don't do, the things you go to or don't go to, the things you read or don't read, the music you listen to or don't listen to, the things you watch, the things you say, the things you dream about, these things are shaping your actions, your character, and frankly, your future. I want you to notice something else in this teaching of Jesus in this short paragraph. None of Jesus' statements are commands. He's not giving orders here. Often, Jesus does this. He's simply observing that this is how things are, just like the principle behind the Sabbath law. A certain kind of tree comes from a certain kind of fruit. You store up certain stuff, it will come out. He's not giving orders. He's a brilliant teacher, and this is often what he does. He's just observing. Here's the way life was meant to work. He says the inside of the tree is what is important, and this applies to what the Sabbath brings out in us as well. So what might that look like? Well, here's four vacational Sabbath rhythms I want to suggest that you make a part of your lives so that you're on the good in, good out side of the equation. The first one is, and this is so obvious as I hardly need to say it, but it's rest. Just the word rest. The Bible says on the Sabbath, God rested. The Sabbath itself comes from a word that originally meant to cease or desist just to stop, just to rest. We ignore this at our peril because there's consequences to not resting. One of the things I learned the hard way on the farm is the practice of maintenance. If I wanted something to work right, I kept the maintenance up on it. Now, you can ignore the maintenance instructions from the owner's manual if you you want to, but you're going to pay. Sooner or later, it's just a matter of time. God said, I'm going to give you Uh, owner's manual here, and I want you to lay out some maintenance instructions that you follow here, and they're called the Ten Commandments. I'm creating the Sabbath, and on this day, you're to rest. Stop your toiling. I made you. I know what you need. You must be rested to live well. You just must. Over the long haul, you can't violate this. Through rest going on in your inner life, you restore balance. You rejuvenate energy. You become energized again to face the day. You gain perspective, and problems that you've been magnifying get downsized appropriately. Isn't that true? Often when you wake up in the morning, the problem that was driving you nuts in the evening doesn't seem so big, because you've rested And most of all, in the rest, you're supposed to enjoy God. We're supposed to enjoy God. Enjoy resting in the presence of God. God says you need to have a day in the week where you simply don't toil. You say no to overactivity. You say no to the frenzied scheduling of our day. Don't do the toil, God says. Don't talk about it, don't think about it, don't plan it. Just insert rest into your life so your body can be refreshed, your emotions renewed, your perspective restored. So the question, the $64 million question today, folks, is, are we? Are we doing this? Do we trust God enough? Because this really comes down to a trust issue. Do we trust God enough to rest? Or are we actually saying to God by not resting, my devotion to work and success is so much more important to me than my own well-being. God says, just rest, people. Rest, and you'll discover an amazing thing. There's a real good chance, even if you don't do any work all day on the Sabbath day, the sun will come up again the next morning, because it isn't our world. It's his and it's doing pretty well before we came along, and it will do pretty well long after we're gone. God created it. God sustains it. And on the Sabbath day, when you rest and take your hands off the, the gas pedal, for the foot off the gas pedal, what you realize, it's true. Life goes on. God's got this. The next thing that the Sabbath keepers do is the word reflection. They reflect, and this, too, is built into the process of creation. We're told in the opening words of Genesis that God does work. He created the heavens and the earth. God just speaks, and it's so. God just says it, and it happens. God says, let there be light, and there's light. God says, let there be darkness, and there's darkness. And this refrain gets repeated over and over again. And God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. Over and over and over. And then God stops. He doesn't just plunge ahead to the next task. One of the amazing things about God and one of the most frustrating things about him for us is he is not ever in a hurry. He could have created the whole thing like this. (laughs) Let's just get this over with, man. We got work to do. No, seven days. He took his time. At the end of each day, the Bible says God stands back and he reviews what he's done and he reflects on what's happened that day. He savors it. You might even say he muses on it And then he looks at it and says, yeah, it's good. Do you do this? Do you have mini Sabbaths? Do you take moments and just sort of think about what's happened during the day? Or do you just plod from task to task, unblinking obligation mode, I will do what I need to do. I will do what I need. You can have a little mini Sabbath at the end of the day. You can do what God did at the end of each day. Just review what happened during the day. Just start in the morning and then kind of walk scene by scene, and there will be some moments where you're honestly just filled with gratitude. You'll think, Boy, that was good. God, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Grateful in, gratitude out. G I G I. You get more connected to Him. You'll see some ways where you really have to change, and you'll say, God, help me to become a different person. You'll see some areas where you've, you've got a problem and you don't know what to do, and you'll say, God, give me wisdom, and He will. Are you reflecting, friends? You can take this challenge to the extent that it strikes you. But I want you to be real frank with yourselves. And I know your name isn't Frank. Some of you are here, and you're already starting to run real hard. You're already starting on that treadmill. It's starting to happen. And there's lots of things happening early in the morning until late at night. And your life looks pretty impressive to those watching. But the truth is, your soul is moving towards the empty mark on the gauge. You don't even know your own heart. You used to have a generous spirit. Not so much anymore. The conscience that could be sensitive has become full of laziness and dullness and you don't even see it anymore. You don't marvel. When was the last time you just marveled at the gift of life? Just the sheer miracle of waking up in the morning and being alive. When was the last time you trembled in the presence of God, the God of the universe, the great I am? We don't do a lot of that. And I'm asking you, will you change? Will you be still before God? Will you remember the seed of eternity that is planted in your soul? There's another thing Sabbath keepers do, and this is a great gift. It's summed up in the one word, recreation. One of the gifts children, gifts, gifts children give us is they know how to play. Just watch children for a little while. And honestly, most of the time a smile comes across your face because you see them just enjoying the moment, just playing for the sake of playing. They're totally immersed in it. They lose themselves in the joy of the moment. When was the last time you did that? Do you know the joy of just not being strategic and utilitarian and scheming and calculating and living life instead for the sheer joy of being alive? You need more than you know to engage in some activities, hobbies, crafts, pastimes, not because they have some value, utilitarian value, not because they give you business contacts, but things that you do just because they breathe life and joy into your soul and remind you of the sheer gratuitive goodness of God who gave all these things to us. God is just good, right? Right? It reminds you that your worth is not measured by your work, your production capability, how many times you cross home plate. Very often our joy in nature and mastering crafts and playing games and being creative is, in fact, a reflection of the image of God in our lives, for that's the way God is. Go back to the first Sabbath. God says, I think I'll look in my aquarium. And he beholds the Pacific and the Atlantic and every body of water and all the fishes therein. And he says, that's good, that's good. I think I'll play with my weather kit for a while. And God says to the snow, fall on the earth, mostly in Winnipeg, as it turns out. (laughs) And to the rain shower, the downpour, not so much right now. The Bible says he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He grasps lightning in his hands and commands it to strike its mark, and it always does. God thoroughly enjoys being God. God loves the work of his hand. What are the activities that breathe life into you? The ones that remind you of God's goodness and restore your soul? Are you doing them? Maybe it's taking a long walk, going for a drive. Maybe music revives you, renews you. Maybe you love to cook and you love to get to get, get together with other people who love to cook. Maybe you love to eat and you love to get together with other people who love to cook. Maybe it's just an all-out athletic contest. No holds barred. That just breathes life into you, and you feel fully alive. Sabbath keepers are involved in rest, reflection, and recreation. They get recreated. And then a last word, a beautiful word. One of my favorites, one of the most important things that a Sabbath keeper does is the word remember. Remember the Sabbath, God says. By keeping it holy, keep it set apart that you might let some good from God into your soul. The word remember keeps cropping up in connection with the Sabbath. Do a little bit of a word study. Remember, God says as he explains it, that once you were slaves in Egypt, remember that at one time you were trapped, you were stuck, you were without hope. Then he says, remember what happened. Remember that I delivered you. Remember the Sabbath. Remember about this world that I, the Lord your God, created it. You didn't make it. It doesn't run according to your word. I created this world, and I'm at work redeeming this world. You remember, and Sabbath keepers remember. I'll tell you a kind of parable to kind of end here, a kind of parable about Sabbath living that I read from an anonymous author. I honestly, I've seen it several different times. I don't know who wrote this. And I quote, Last year, the writer says, my son played t-ball. This is the bottom step on the 20-rung ladder to, the, to getting into the major leagues. The rules for t-ball are different from the majors. No agents, no reserve clause. You go to the team that chooses you. In fact, there's only two teams in our league with 25 kids on each team. Parents are friendly to each other, which will dissolve in several years as the com- competition grows. In our t-ball, everybody bats, every inning, regardless of how many outs there are. In fact, an out is a rare occurrence. All 25 players play each inning and are littered throughout the infield, forming a wall of humanity through which it is virtually impossible for a ball to pass. On each team, there is one player who insists on fielding every ball. Then running after the base runner, never throwing it, balls are never thrown. If they're thrown, they must either go over the head of the intended recipient or hit them in the back. There is no such thing as an error. In t-ball, each player has a different concept of the score. In t-ball, kids have to go to the bathroom almost immediately. (laughs) Parents go out into the field and console their children who have skinned their knees. And of course, in t-ball, no one pitches. The ball sits on a plastic tee, waiting for the batter to hit it, which happens about once every three batters. Now, on the other team, there was a girl I'll call Tracy. Tracy came each week. I knew since my son's team always played her team. She was not very good. She wore Coke bottle glasses and had hearing aids in each ear. She ran in a loping, carefree way with one leg pulling after the other, one arm windmilling wildly in the air. Everyone in the bleachers cheered for her, regardless of which team. In all the games I saw, she never hit the ball, not even close. It, It sat there on the tee, waiting to be hit, and it never was. Sometimes after 10 or 11 swings, Tracy hit the tee instead. The ball would fall off the tee and sit on the ground six inches from home plate. Run, Tracy, run, yelled Tracy's coach. And Tracy Tracy would lope off to first, clutching the bat in both arms, smiling like crazy. Somebody usually woke up and ran her down with the ball before she reached first. Everyone applauded her. The last game of the season came. Tracy came up and threw some fluke or simply in a nod towards the law of averages. She creams the ball. She smoked it right up the middle through the legs of 17 players. Kids... (laughs) Kids looked absent-mindedly at it, at it as it rolled, seemingly gaining speed out into the outfield, hopping over second base, heading into center field. Once it got there, there was no one to stop it. Have I told you? There are no outfielders in t-ball. There are for at least the first three minutes of every inning, but then they move to the infield to be closer to the action, or they run off chasing butterflies. Tracy hit the ball and stood at home delighted. Run, yelled her coach. Run, yelled all the parents. All of us, the whole crowd, stood up and screamed, run, Tracy, run. Tracy turned and smiled at us. And she, happy to be pleasing, galloped off to first. The first base coach waved his arms round and round. Tracy stopped at first. No, 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 Tracy, keep going, keep going, go, go, go. Happy to please, she headed to second. By the time she was halfway to second, seven members of the opposition had reached the ball and were passing it amongst themselves. Tracy headed to third. Adults yelled from the bleachers, Go, Tracy, go. Her coach stood at home plate, beckoning her forward, calling her as as the ball passed over the first baseman's head and landed in the dugout. Come on, Tracy, come on, baby, get a home run. Tracy started for home, and then it happened. During the pandemonium, no one had noticed the 12-year-old mutt that had been sleeping in front of the bleachers five feet from the third baseline. As Tracy rounded third, the dog, awakened by all the screaming, sat up and wagged its tail at Tracy as she headed down the line. The tongue hung out, mouth pulled back, in an unmistakable canine smile and Tracy stopped right there halfway home 30 feet from a legitimate home run she looked at the dog the crowd cheered go Tracy go go Tracy home she looked at all the adults and her own parents streaking catching it all on video she looked at the dog the dog wagged his tail she looked at her coach she looked at home plate she looked at the dog everything went into slow motion and she went for the dog There was a moment of complete stunned silence. Then, perhaps not as loud, but deeper, longer, and more heartfelt, we all exploded in applause as Tracy fell to her knees to hug the dog. Two roads diverged at third base. Tracy went for the dog. Six days a week, you see, the Bible says six days a week you go for home plate. Six days a week, you plot strategy, and you seek to be more productive. Six days a week, the world screams, run. And perhaps people run until they're exhausted. Six days a week, you try to build up the score. You go for home plate. Six days a week, you labor by the sweat of your brow to wring a living out of the earth. But on the seventh day, the Bible says, on the seventh day, go for the dog. Go for the dog. On the seventh day, remember, I'm not dyslexic, it's actually go for the dog. Go for the dog. On the seventh day, remember what matters. On the seventh day, remember who you are. On the seventh day, remember, for God's sake and for your own sake, why it is you were put on this earth in the first place. On the seventh day, remember that the seed of eternity has been planted in your heart and that the grave is not the end of the road. On the seventh day, remember God who made you loves you more than you can imagine. On the seventh day, remember that compassion is greater than winning. On the seventh day, enjoy creation. Play, laugh, rest, reflect. On the seventh day, when you gather for worship, remember Remember that God says, I want to be your good shepherd. I'll restore your soul. I'll recreate you if you'll let me. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, let's all remember our blessings. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email Prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.